Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. We are coming to you from these United States of America, here in the middle of the country, in Iowa, Des Moines. Thank you, Iowa Catholic Radio, for being our launching pad to the stars. <laughs> I assume that it's stars that broadcast radio signals, Bud. Does that sound scientifically correct? Uh, if, no. <laughs> if satellites count as stars. That's maybe. right. That's right. They kind of blink in the air. At any rate, this is not an astrological program, so you, it's yeah. okay that we're not uh, <laughs> on cue here. Um, we are, however, sponsored by people who do know their science, yeah. Mercy College of Health Sciences. I am the senior advisor for mission initiatives out there and the director of the Center for Human Flourishing. I don't teach astrology or astronomy, either of those. Uh, so your kids are safe if they come here. But what do you do at the old sponsor? I'm the associate provost at Mercy College of Health Sciences. And this time of year as we're broadcasting, I always think about the fact that we start year round. So uh, even though it feels like... Uh, cold heart of winter uh, and that the start of another school year is far down the path actually this summer may and june we we get into some some new starts so mchs.edu to go check all that out thank you mercy college for underwriting our show mchs.edu uh yeah but we're well into february and as we look back uh you know we've doing this grand art called New Beginnings, not only because we have a new show format, we play at a different time, we're go back to the old hour-long format, but it just seemed right to get into some initiatives that talk about new beginnings, how they spring from the old, um, what are the ways in which new things come about. Um, so we, we, we had a, a lot of our CCEP yeah. buddies, uh, people that we made friends with, the church uh uh, communication ecology program at Notre Dame. Uh, so we hope people get to listen to those shows. Um, but that wasn't just made uh, for them. Maybe it seems like we were uh, alley-ooping for them. But we have with us today, uh, who we're going to interview, uh, an Uncommon Good All-Star, uh, Charlie Camosi, who's been on the show before. Um, he's been to Des Moines. He was one of the fellows for the Center for Human Flourishing. People can check him out, mchs.edu slash flourish. But he has a new book that really is about new beginnings, and I'm excited to have him on the show to be able to talk about it. Yeah, I'm really excited to have Charlie on, not only because he's a friend of ours, but uh, I think this book is going to be really challenging for folks. One church how to rekindle trust, negotiate difference, and reclaim, reclaim Catholic identity. And what I appreciate about Charlie Bo is like you, you see a book title like that, and I know some are going to like prejudge the book and think that Charlie's prone to just, you know, easy answers or papering over differences and things like that. And if you ever talk to him, like that's just the exact opposite <laughs> of how he is. Yeah. I think about our good professor back at Duke, you know, Stanley Hauerwas, who was a pacifist. Uh, but unlike some pacifists I met, he was honest about kind of like what comes with this commitment. And I think Charlie's the same way when it comes to church unity and, and not running away from the differences, but a total wholehearted commitment to the Catholic faith, but then addressing this topic that's so pressing in our time. Now, this is a good, you know, a lot of what Charlie talks about is I, I, in that vein, right? Like peaceableness uh, against throwaway culture, pro-life movement, but also how do we, um, you know, embody uh, yeah. nonviolence and caring for the poor and things like this? 
But that dude will throw down and have arguments. A, I've heard them. (laughs) I've seen him uh, give talks and, I mean, get into it. Uh, He was willing. He had, uh, you know, Peter Singer, who well known as sort of being like the antithesis of so much of Catholic um, moral ethics, uh, theology and philosophy. But him and Charlie had a sort of uh, respectful but like ongoing, you know, argument about how these things would go. Um, But I've even been a part of arguments where, he uh on a text chain we were in agreement but the question was like what do you think of when you think of marky mark first i won't get into what all that involved but my point is the guy's not just selling fluff yeah you're gonna love this stick around this is the uncommon good bob or dr budmar speaking with charlie camosi uncommon good all-star with his new book about the one church unity and diversity you will like it this is the uncommon good and we'll be back right after this Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr, joining you this week. Thank you for listening to the show, whether that's live on Iowa Catholic Radio when we play here on the weekends, whether you're listening to us uh, on other stations throughout the nation, or if you've joined us through podcasts, thank you for downloading and listening to the show. Today, um, this is the first time we've had him back with our new format, but definitely... Uh, an uncommon good all-star, one of our good friends, Dr. Charlie Camosi, uh, with a new book. Charlie, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, and Bud, it is fantastic to be back on The Uncommon Good. Well, we're glad that we could get you back when we rolled out the new format. Um, I know we had you once on the short format, and it felt like we barely got started. Uh, So it's good to have a full (laughs) 40 minutes to talk to you about um, your new book that I'll let you introduce here in a second. But just to let everybody, uh, to put them in the right frame of mind, we've been the new format, the new year, talking about new beginnings. Charlie, the minute we thought about this arc of shows, talking about new beginnings, Bud and I immediately thought of you. Um, there's a lot that you're doing trying to initiate new beginnings, giving people new ways uh, to think about things, whether that's um, the pro-life movement or how Catholics engage in politics, things like this. I think your new book gets at the heart of the matter. So if you don't mind telling people what your new book uh, is titled and what you were trying to get at when you wrote it. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a short book, um, almost like a handbook for um, resisting polarization at this particular moment in the church. Its title is called One Church, um, How to Rekindle Trust, Negotiate Difference, and Reclaim Catholic Unity. And uh, like I said, it's pretty short and it's, I think, I hope pretty readable. I know sometimes we can write uh, stuff as academics that's not very readable, but this I think is pretty readable. And it really is a, a book for our current moment. And w- what I'm trying to do is, is an, uh, apropos of what you just said, you know, think about a new beginning at this moment, right? One that, that focuses on our baptism rather than in our political divisions. Um, and I'll say more about that as the conversation unfolds, but that's that's basically the thrust of the book. Well, I think it's important for people to realize something that um, if you've heard any of these shows, and I mean, we're, we're hoping you're all faithful listeners, but if this is the first one you're listening to, one of the interesting things that keeps coming up is that for Christians, and even a sort, in a sort of theological way, um, there isn't anything that's completely new, right? And then there's a, an interesting way that when we pay attention to our roots, if we look deep into our history, that's when new things can start to really occur. It's when we sort of get um, hazy about the past 
that we sort of get trapped in the present, that there's this paradox that paying attention to the old and the ancient is what allows, you know, new flowers to bloom, as it were. I think that that starts to be an interesting um, angle to take, even with the book that you wrote here, Charlie, because I think sometimes people go, look, to make a new beginning um, in terms of politics or, or just anything that we're trying to do as Catholics means wiping the slate clean. What I was really appreciate about your book is that in each chapter you take what you, you know you call sort of relative stereotypes that are supposed to be opposed to each other and try to actually show that there is a commonality in the past that hopefully allows us to look to the future. So not a reset button, but uh, getting deeper into who we are so that we can move forward. Yeah. One of the things um, that was very well said, one of the things that diving into the history allows you to do too, is be a little more confident that this can actually happen. (laughs) Um, And that things aren't really as bad as maybe we think if we're constantly exposed to so much bad news and um, there's a lot to go around. but I, you know, one of the things that I did with Ave Maria Press's discussion guide, which I worked on and came out recently for the book, was um, I essentially created as a novena to Saints Peter and Paul. And the reason I did that was because of something I mentioned very early on in the book, which is the, the pillars of the church, right? We celebrate their feast day together, Peter and Paul, went at it pretty hard, especially Paul <laughs> went at Peter pretty hard, right? And told him off to his face, basically. That's the way he describes it. Peter, that's the way Paul describes it uh, when Peter comes to Antioch. And um, and my gosh, right? Th- those are those are our two pillars who went at it that hard. If, Even Peter then, has the course, weird, like, passive-aggressive, like, Paul, you know, he, he's got some things to say. <laughs> <laughs> he said some and, stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, you go a couple centuries more and you got – the, the bishops of the Council of Nicaea arguing about, you know, who Jesus is, basically. I haven't figured that out in 300 years. Um, and there are a lot of Arian bishops, actually, that come come out after that, right, and are are around and doing their thing. And you go on and on, the orders fighting each other, um, you know, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and even Thomas Aquinas takes it on the chin really hard. I mean, we've had such dramatic disagreements and such dramatic um, fracturing that what we have now, as bad as it is, really is par for the course. And, um, and we've got through those and we'll get through this one because it's about the Holy Spirit, not about us. Um, but it's an opportunity for us to work with the Holy Spirit to have it come out a certain way. Um, and again, a way that prioritizes our baptism over the kinds of, uh, especially political fissures that, that are so idolatrous right now. Charlie, one of the blurbs on the back of the book stood out to me. John Cavadini, a great theologian in his own right, said that anyone who knows you will know that this book is not a manual for compromising Catholic teaching. Um, when I when I have conversations about these topics, even at like coffee hour after mass or whatever, I find that especially in political conversations or when we're addressing like social ills or whatever, what can hamper this kind of unity is the assumption that it's all a zero-sum game. Like if we... If we don't fight tooth and claw for X, then side Y is going to win. I don't know if you could speak right. to that topic, especially I know in your experience with the the pro-life movement, there's all sorts of like pushes to say like, well, you know, our, our resistance to sometimes like working with certain people. Um, any thoughts on the kind of like zero sum way we approach politics today? Yeah, that's another thing that history really helps us out with, too, right, is that um in fighting for unity and diversity, 
um, with the Trinitarian model of, of the church. Um, you know, there have been plenty of times throughout history where, you know, you might look back and you might call it a compromise or something that um, is less than ideal, right, as the church moves itself forward, prudentially reading the signs of the times. Now, that doesn't mean, again, as, as John mentioned in his blurb, that we punt or ignore or much less, you know, dissent on any of the truths of the church, but it does mean that we have to live in reality and we have to read the signs of the times and we have to push forward in ways that um, are possible. And, and the church's own teaching reflects this. So in in the, in uh, St. John Paul II's great encyclical, The Gospel of Light, at Life, it explicitly, the Evangelium Vitae explicitly says, hey, you know, we, we should be pushing for equal protection of the law, essentially, for, for prenatal children. But um, there are prudential judgments to make about a particular moment in time, about a particular political reality, about a particular, again, prudential judgment about strategy that might lead us to say, push for 15 weeks, right, as, as, a, as, a, as a threshold which will protect prenatal children, or after we can detect a heartbeat or some other threshold. Um, and there's always been a distinction between a moral teaching, right, and say how um, Catholics in the pro-life movement push for a particular public policy. Even St. Thomas Aquinas himself said that he thought at the time that the prudential judgment should be made that would make prostitution legal, you know, all things being equal. You know, he's, he says it's still an intrinsically evil act. It's still gravely morally evil, but it still should be legal. So there are all these things that, um, again, not punting on any of the church's teaching um, at all, uh, far from it, but but moving forward in a way historic with that historical record in mind, I think could be helpful. I think that, you know, to, to get to baptism, I know that you've hinted at it, even to think about both baptism, what it says about us, and then debates in the early church about baptism. So on one hand, you know, we are baptized, we are made a new creation, um, the old man, the old Adam dies, we are born again with the new Adam of Christ. But of course, all of us know then we still sin, we still have to go to confession, right? The old the old bow, even though he's baptized, uh, I, I have to carry that weight. That's part of my cross, right, is that I'm still, um, you know, doing the things that I will that I not do, like St. Paul says, right? Or that creation groans towards this fulfillment that's coming that's not here yet. And I think about even like... in. St. Augustine's life, like you said, hundreds of years into this whole church adventure, people are arguing about, well, if baptism is what we say it is, you know, maybe you should hold off until the moment you're dead, right? Because, you know, <laughs> right. like, you know, you, you, you only get one shot at this. And so it's Augustine and people like that, even that far into it, arguing, no, 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 the graces of baptism are too important uh, to, to give as soon as we can to enter in this, two life, uh, this new life to sort of hold off because we have a sort of overly pietistic notion um, that, you know, you really need to only do this once and then, you know, that's it. And like, you know, have happy timing with your baptism. So I think even both baptism theologically and how it shows up historically in the, sh- the church gets exactly what you're, you're hoping to point out here. Exactly. That's well said. And, um, and one of the graces, one of the, one of the important graces that we receive is we become uh, all siblings to each other through Christ and holding off in the last minute for that sort of thing. I'm glad we moved away from that, um, from that model or practice, uh, because what do we need now worse um, than to see fellow Christians, fellow Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ, actual brothers and sisters, not sort of analogous or like, that's kind of a fluffy way of saying we all like each other, but really, 
seeing ourselves as siblings and then seeing that and see each other as foundationally as family um, makes the kinds of real differences that we do have with each other. Even I dare I say the three of us uh, who are talking right now may have some differences in our family here amongst each other, but it's done in a way I hope um, where we see each other precisely as uh, in a context of a family. And, and this book is not happy talk. It's not about like, you know, let's all be nice to each other or something. So it's good to be kind. Um, it is about finding unity and diversity amidst the difference, right? Amidst the disagreements. And when you have that foundational um, place, you start with a common baptism, which makes us family. It should go much differently <laughs> than at least it currently is at the moment. Cause I don't see a lot of evidence that the, especially intra-Catholic debates um, start there. Well, Bud is an Aryan. That's true. Oh, no. <laughs> no. no. I don't think as a numinous I'm allowed. That, to I'm joking. Yeah. I'm going. But, um, he, he got over that a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Charlie, you're you're a theologian and bioethicist, but your your work, and especially this one in some ways, I think shades sociological, like looking at the factors that have led to this state. And I, I struggle with some of this myself. So I've, I've said on the show before, like my, my family and I attend – the Latin mass, you know, and it's, it's, I'm driven a lot by like liturgical considerations, but I mean, one factor that I see our one outcome is that at those sorts of liturgies. And I think at a lot of liturgies in the United States, you tend to rub shoulders with like-minded people, right? Like it sort of attracts a certain crowd. And I, I wrestle with this because I grew up evangelical and one of the impulses to becoming Catholic is this resistance to church shopping, sort of like designer Christianity where you, you sort of like um, pick or select what kind of things you want to characterize your Christian life. Um, I think your book kind of gets into some of this with the section on the generational divide, but I, um, mm. I was wondering if you could share thoughts on like what sort of things in American life, even beyond, um, you know, like we, we've, we've, we've touched on the political factors a little bit, but like I, suburbanization uh, digital media. There are all sorts of things that are playing into this kind of where our identity as an American, or maybe even some other like sub demographic, like defines us more than our commitment to Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's that gets to the heart of the book in many ways. Um, well, let me just say something very briefly about the way you opened with your particular example about church shopping and the Latin Mass. One of the things that popped into my head as you were speaking about that was what wouldn't it be great if we had a commitment to liturgical diversity and unity that the latin mass would be a place that would just be uh, or a thing that would be more available right so that because in principle and i know you agree with me about this and 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 lots of people are moving this direction in principle the latin mass could bring a wide variety of people into it i just know personally like people from all over the political map all over the ecclesial map um, it's, I've even heard lots of interesting stories about, um, people who have disabled children or other children who are otherwise unable to pay attention at mass or are neuro neurodivergent in some ways who just really benefit from that kind of liturgy. It would be really great if we could have, um, you know, uh, a wide variety of, of options have true unity and diversity that way so that it wouldn't be this kind of weird thing that you traveled away from your it, you know, your local neighborhood in order to get it. I'm, we are, we are uh, thinking of moving a little bit um, south, closer to my wife's work at the moment. And uh, we're thinking about parishes, right? And one, 
one of the parishes we're thinking yeah, it has has a Latin mass, but it also has several other masses. We went we're not Latin mass people, so we went the other masses, but it was it was a great little community of, of, of folks. Um, but I do think there is something problematic about church hopping, even though I'm drawn to it as well as we go through this. <laughs> we're literally church hopping. We're saying, well, what do you think about that place? What do you think about that place as we move? Um, and it is because of something that, you know, a while back was called the Great Sort, which has just been on um, in hyperspace over the last, you know, several years since that book came out in particular because of social media in particular because it's so easy to sort it's so much easier to sort ourselves i got this on the brain too as we think about moving i mean there's so many things now that are just accessible at the tip of your fingers to find out about a place right see if you fit there rather than just kind of being thrown in and and, and amidst the diversity and in, in principle anyway there really should be a, a a catholic parish community that is diverse that forces you to engage again, with people who disagree with you, but keeping that at the foundational level, um, always understood the foundational level is one where we're connected to our baptism. And so it should be a place like we, you know, the human concerns people and the pro-life people, the social justice people, and the theology of the body people are all hanging out together at the, you know, pancake and porky breakfast in the church basement afterwards, right? That's, that should be the way that it rolls. Um, but unfortunately, um, in no, in no small part due to the uh, idolatry of, of political stuff. But, but as you, as your question suggests, even more than that, um, it's a tough road to hoe. You know, I think it's interesting too. In some ways we have to just admit there has always been sorting of, of a sort. That's a bad pun. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and it's certainly it's exacerbated by the conditions that, you know, the digital life allows. What I think is interesting though is, Maybe there's better and worse types of sorting. You know, this gets to your point about like in a perfect world and, you know, like we can talk about the perfect world where we're all, you know, together and brothers and there's no problem. But we live in this world. We were baptized, but we're, you know, still in via on uh, pilgrims. I think that, you know, you go to a place like Rome and there's more church, like churches are, are like Starbucks, right? Like there will be churches like across the street. Now, how did people used to sort each other? Well, they had devotions to saints. So you, you actually chose which church you went to, like not shopping, like you're like, are these people like me? You're like, I'm devoted to St. Michael the Archangel. I'm going to go to that church. That's the mass that I'm going to do. I'm going to be devoted in that way. My point to get here is you even think about this in terms of, like you said, the religious orders. You know, to choose to be Dominican is to have a certain sort of spirituality, Franciscans, etc. But there were, of course, places where those people had to meet. For instance, universities, right? Like the universities in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. was ways in which pre-sorted people, I'm I'm this, I'm that, Franciscan, Dominican, etc. They had to come together in a university, right? A unified thing. So I sometimes think it's a question of when we think about sorting, are we going to do it with better ends in mind? I'm devoted to this saint. I'm going to go to his altar, her altar. Um, or when we admit that we have to be sorted because we end up being like this spirituality or that, is there places that we've made where we have to come together like universities? Being practical in that way, too, I think is important. Um, and not allowing ourselves when we end up, you know, you have, you're going to choose to go to a church, not do it, like you said, based on political or sociological realities. Yeah, that seems right. Um, that seems that seems definitely correct. Um I guess I just add that uh, there seems to be a kind of sorting now. Um, again, that's quite different than the kind you just described. Fundamentally different. Ex- yeah, absolutely. 
where we can't where we can't um, even stand the sight of each other, right? Like the idea of somebody, for instance, um, in a MAGA hat or somebody who's, uh, you know, very clearly sending a signal that they're, I don't know, part of Antifa or something like that, um, using extreme examples here. But there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of sorting now that takes place where I, where the people just can't even stand the sight of each other, much less sitting down to break bread over breakfast with each other, have a coffee with each other. And, and I, I don't, you know, I, of course it's been, there've been lots of fights in the church. We just got done talking about that, but, but that's where I think, uh, you know, a commitment to your local, um, to your local parish could really be, be a balm here because, because you learn to understand that despite what kind of clothes somebody might wear to send a certain kind of signal, um, the thick, the thickness of the relationship, uh, again, if you start with your baptism as foundational can push back against those kinds of, uh, reactions. And I got to tell you, that's a huge part of the book. It, I take each, each group and essentially give the thin caricature and then try to thicken it out in a way that, you know, isn't really what it, what we hope it would be, which is literally being in the presence of somebody and thickening out the relationship. But anyway, I'll stop there. Yeah. No, well, I hate to sort uh, here, but uh, we're coming up to the first <laughs> break. <laughs> so I'm going to sort this show into one segment. We'll take a break and we'll get to the next one uh, next. But I, th- I believe they'll be unified. So stick around, folks, and check that out. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back right after this. Back with The Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr joining you this week. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you to Iowa Catholic Radio for making this possible. You can listen live on Iowa Catholic Radio if you're able to do so. You can do that on iowacatholicradio.com or the Iowa Catholic Radio app. Uh, but, of course, you're also maybe listening to this through podcasts. So thank you for making sure to tune in. We appreciate all our listeners. So we're back talking with Charlie Camosi and his new book. Charlie, uh, if you don't mind, real quick, give people the rundown, the new book's title uh, and uh, the blurb, and then we'll get right back into talking about it. Sure. Uh, it's called One Church, How to Rekindle Trust, Negotiate Difference, and Reclaim uh, Catholic Unity. It's a little handbook for um, for dealing with difference um, and especially polarized differences in the church in our current moment, emphasizing our common baptism over ideological fracturing. Yeah, one of the differences we should point out real quick before we talk about unity is that you write way more than Bud and I, and I am always impressed. I mean, we could go back and like just name very important, wonderful books that you've written um, recently as well, uh, many of them on bioethics. Uh, Mercy College shows up in one of them, you know, so, you know, we a book on nursing. Um, so... What I what I the reason I'm bringing this up uh, is not just to uh, you know make sure people not not for Bud and I to feel bad about how lazy we are, uh, but to point out I've always appreciated that as an ethicist and someone who has this call to speak um, to the ethical habits that the church should have, I think it's of one accord that you talk about things like throwaway culture, bioethics, pro life, and then this question about unity and difference. So it's not just sociological. It's not just, wouldn't this be nice? You, with your eye towards uh, the ethical formation of the church, has said this division um, causes problems in the life of the church. And so do you think there's something about that, that we're not going to be serious um, about this unity and diversity? Not only, like we said earlier, that if we don't take for, you know, as real our unity and our baptism— but that maybe if we keep looking at this as a quote-unquote merely sociological problem, we're missing some aspect of why this is truly scandalous. 
Yeah. So it's definitely a sociological problem. And there are definitely um, issues related to um, ethics and morality um, at the center of this as well. And like your question um, implies, my work on those over the years has really led to a place where I could write a book like this. Um, but let me offer, I guess, a, a limitation of, of my perspective here. And this is where both of you, I think, come in in a way that um, can actually be stronger in speaking to this, maybe. Um, you know, there's only there's only so much, I think, that we moral theologians and ethicists can do to kind of clear. I think what we can do maybe is help clear the deck a little bit and say, well, there are these stumbling blocks that many people have that are related to issues um, in bioethics or more broadly and moral related to moral theology, morality and ethics. But at the end of the day, once you clear those decks, you still have to, you know, um, have a relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. And, um, and sometimes you, even if you clear the decks, you know, to, to have a, a well-lived life to understand what it means to live, live a moral and ethical life. You have to worship properly, right? Um, just absolutely. Essentially, I can't tell you how many people I've known who, you know, have had a conversion of heart um, related to, to their faith. And then they shift on the ethics, right? And, um, and, uh, and have a more unified understanding uh, about these things, uh, that they didn't have previously. And, and, and so that's a major part of, of, you know, what's going on here as well is, and, and why it's so important again, to draw as many people in, I start with the classic uh, Joyce line, here comes everyone to, to really welcome everyone um, with the understanding that we're working towards unity and diversity, but, but, but making that um, a, a, a real place where that can actually happen. Charlie, I'll be honest. I'm a little nervous about this next question. <laughs> it's a pure uh, bud question. Yep. Yeah, um, because I, I'm putting no, you on, I'm nervous. No, yeah. I'm nervous. <laughs> putting you on the spot a bit, but like, um, so we've talked some already about some of the difficulties and challenges. I wonder if you have thoughts about like you've you've been in a space where it was it was a success story, like a group or a community is doing this really well, and if not, maybe in our current circumstances, like, is there a time historically where we could say like th this would have been a moment in history where it would have been easy for the church to be very fractured, but they were faithful in the circumstances to, you know, um, remain rooted in the unity that's provided by the sacraments. Great moments in church unity. Yes. Great moments in church unity. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it's a tough question. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <bud. laughs> it, it, well, let me just, let me just, um, let me just stall a little by answering a question you didn't ask, which is, uh, you know, I do think we can point to patterns over time, right. That shift, um, in the direction of church unity uh, rather than moments. So, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a particular moment, right. The moments maybe suck <laughs> and, 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 but you can see the Holy spirit work through, literally through those moments over time and heal in direction of unity. And we already talked about some of, some of those examples, right? So even the moment of Nicaea didn't solve anything, right? That was just led to a ton of mad Aryan bishops, right? But, <laughs> but now we, but now we got, uh, over time, the spirit has worked in the church and the Nicene Creed is even kind of boring, right? You have to try to get people interested in it because like, what is that even about? You know, like, isn't this all, 
you know, when, whenever anybody says, well, the real focus should be on the stuff in the Nicene Creed, not on all this moral theology stuff, which is something I hear sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, most people look at that and say, well, what is there even to talk about? Nobody disagrees about that stuff. Or if they do, it's not the kind of same kind of disagreement. And, um, and we can see that, you know, with, with other ways. I was listening um, uh, to George Weigel, of all people, on a podcast yesterday talking about his new book on Vatican II. And he was comparing... Um, you know, the reception of other councils to the reception of Vatican II. And interestingly, he's, he's like not too worried about it. He's like, well, we got many decades to go before we even really have a sense of like what the consensus is going to be about this council and how it's going to be received and how it fits into the life of the church. Um, you know, I, so, so if we're thinking about particular moments, I guess I do struggle to come up with those kinds of examples. But I think there are plenty of examples, maybe even the very existence of the church over time itself is one big example of how the spirit can work through those moments of suckiness, as it were, um, to push towards, you know, unity and diversity. I think that's really helpful, you know, to go to jump back to liturgy for a moment. We think about Vatican II and the arguments that happened after the council took place. And, you know, like Joseph Ratzinger said, you know, the time after the council has been difficult and disruptive in some ways, but you think about some insights that were given there, like the idea of real and active participation. Um, and, and even like in more traditional liturgical circles, I don't think folks in the pews realize like how much that movement sort of impacts, even how we experience older forms of the, 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 the liturgy. Or I think about like Jody Bottoms essay at the swallows of Capistrano and how the pro-life movement, like in a time in American history where it would have been easy to capitulate like these became sort of like foundational parts of Catholic moral theology or the Catholic moral vision, such that even like for lack of a better term, like very progressive theologians or figures in the church, there's sort of this idea, like there's certain kind of like core moral teachings that we can't compromise on. We might argue about, like you said, prudential judgments, but there's this way that like that pattern of the, the emphasis on the pro-life movement has created a kind of cohesiveness that we take for granted. Agreed. And I'll, I'll see that and raise you this other point, too. Um, I was giving a talk um, uh, at Notre Dame last week, and I was just astonished once again by what John Cavadini at the Institute for Church Life and, and Carter Sneed at the Center for Ethics and Culture have pulled off there. But I was struck, especially having just finished this book, by the fact that these two monstrously large and important figures in the U.S. American church um, are obviously lay people and would never have had this opportunity to be the force that they are for unity and diversity in in tremendous ways. In fact, that was the focus of the panel was thinking about a gospel of life after Dobbs. And it was very clear this is the direction we're moving in, right? You know, um, at least least with that crowd, uh, that very influential crowd. But again, like without the shift to the laity that Vatican II offered, this in some ways very traditional kind of movement um, that has affected so many, including the three of us, um, in various ways, uh, would not have been possible. And so, again, if you if you had just taken the first few decades after the council and, and you, you read the kind of laity, you know, the empowerment of the laity versus the kind of fracturing that was taking place then, you couldn't even imagine really this new thing that came about, right, from this the empowerment of the laity in ways that build up the church in a quite a different way, a way that doesn't make any sense even to kind of arguments that were being had, you know, a couple, three decades after the council. So 
so yeah, we, we just have a long way to go to try to figure out what, what the Holy Spirit is doing with all of this. It seems. Well, in the spirit of letting you uh, now ask hard questions back to us, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll turn it over uh, to the, the segment. We, haven't, we have to come up with a, a pithy name at some point, but yeah. the non-pithy name is, it's your turn to ask us questions for the remainder of the segment. So fire away, Charlie. Yes, 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 yes. Well, um, I don't know that I have tough questions, but hopefully they're, they're interesting ones. They're, they may tee things up in a way for for your sponsors of the program and uh, people who are disproportionately listening from your community there. But, um, but my question is, it seems speaking of new beginnings, we, you know, we, we, we're in the midst of maybe a new beginning when it comes to healthcare, right? We're just now, it seems starting to really understand the structural problems um, with delivering healthcare and kind of a physician centric model with the nurse as the kind of, underling who is a gopher and and just basically trained as a technocrat or some or you know at at best a technocrat in some in some context and the three of us have had you know i've learned a lot from from you about about nursing and how you think of it in your own context and how it should be thought of in a catholic context in particular and so i guess i just want to ask you about this is there a way well i think i know the answer to this well maybe it's better more honestly asked what are the ways in which um, a specifically Catholic understanding can maybe shift and, well, impact uh, this a new beginning for healthcare in the United States, healthcare delivery in the United States? Yeah. No, I think this is a good question and um, one that can get us fired. So thank you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm now going to go on a soapbox that I know both of you have heard me go on, but I think one of the commonalities about a, a, a new beginning that has to happen in healthcare and education, and especially in healthcare education, is the machine model is breaking down. Um, one of the most difficult things to argue against the way we've done education or medicine is the machine has had run so smoothly, or at least it seemed it was that it seemed ridiculous to to put up any big um, complaints against it. Because people would just point to the fact, like, your grandma got a new hip buddy, right? Or, like, you know, white trash from Oklahoma, like, your family, Bo, went to college. So what are you complaining about? New beginnings, of course, can only really happen when there's sort of the disruption enough to make us, us, right? Not just one or two people, us, ask, why is the machine no longer running like it was And so it's now absolutely prophetic time for Catholics to stand up and say, look, there's a way in which you can make a machine that can run for decades and decades, but it's off of the back of treating humans, not only patients and students, but the practitioners, the people who practice Mm. medicine, the people who teach as parts to make the machine run. And it took something as disruptive um, as, as the COVID pandemic, um, to hopefully stop and make people ask this, I'm already worried, Charlie, that people that to ask those questions are so uncomfortable that we're doing our darndest to cover them back up and just just make the machine run again. And I think it's integral to who we are as Catholics to say we all need to be uncomfortable for however long it takes to stop acting like both medicine education and particularly healthcare medication, uh, education, healthcare medication, but also education um, <laughs> are no longer are simply just a utility machine 
these are humans that go and ask to be educated and healed. That are humans that teach and heal. How do we make it human again? And that's something Catholics must do. Yeah, my answer is probably going to sound rosier than the reality on the ground. But I think about um, the culture of Catholicism and how thick it truly is um, and, and how that forces us to at least ask certain questions. And so I think about our commitment to tradition and sacred art and things like that. So in the in the healthcare context, we have a real opportunity because we're committed to something, say, like the preferential option for the poor. And that cuts against the grain of like a profit-driven model of healthcare. You know, there are procedures and things that in our culture, it's sort of taken for granted. Take something like surrogacy and you just do this, you know, like it's part of the way people seek like meaning and happiness in their life. And we're like, we just can't do that. Or at least like we have to get into a room where people have to uh, ask and answer difficult questions. And then finally, I said sacred art, like the fact that we have crosses on our walls and you know that people are reminded just visually that that suffering is not meaningless that it does have a purpose that it can be united to something greater i mean i think all of those things even even though they might not be doing as much work as we would want like um it's exciting to think about the future and what's possible let me let me ask those are great responses but let me ask specifically about nursing again though so so is there something with regard to both of your answers that would be um, that we might say nursing in particular, right, is a, it could be a particular kind of response. So if we have, you know, the thickness of the multiple responses that Bud just mentioned, and we talk about Bo's understanding of, of, of the human person is, you know, not just a, a machine, but, but again, the kind of entity that responds to the very things that Bud was just talking about in a particular uh, way. You know, it's a leading question, I guess, because I think you both know what I think about that. I think I know what you think about it. But but are, is there something about the practice of nursing itself, maybe even to be more provocative, as opposed to doctoring, that, um, that, that leads us to say we can put our focus here in a particular way that would be helpful? Uh, I'll confess my ignorance about like um, sort of these the state of training physicians. Like I'm less familiar with that, that field and that art. But um, when I think about just like even the character of the experience of medicine today, where a doctor will walk in the room and it will often be like a brief experience and sort of just like the prescription um, and my experience of, of teaching nurses and working alongside nurses, I think there is, uh, I'm guessing a lot more conversation about like what careful nursing looks like or what it means to um, practice compassion as you're going about this healing ministry not to say like all doctors are just like cold hearted, you know, um, <laughs> a fit, you know, like, uh, you know, like lack, most of to, emotionless, you know, um, brains or something. Well, uh, <laughs> shout out to Kristen, our mutual friend, uh, who would love to be in on, on this argument. <laughs> um, I, I'll say this, uh, I will be, I mean, in the spirit of being honest about where I, cause I'm, I'm with you very much historically, as outlined in your book uh, in a, a very uh, wonderfully succinct way, there was this professionalism that supposedly you have the professional, the manager. I mean, this is like Alistair McIntyre and after virtue sort of stuff. There's doctors, right, right. they manage the thing. And then there's sort of um, a cast of characters that brings them the tools or the information they need to work on things. I'll be very honest though. So to like give credit where credit's due I see movements in medic, like in teaching doctors, like at med schools that appreciate the human elements 
some ways better than I currently see in nursing schools across the board. Now, I know why that's the case. Um, when you, so to speak, kick a profession long enough, like to the curb, there's a sort of emphasis on 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 pride, right? Like we're proud of our profession. We're going to make it professional. Um, but you can even hear various people in nursing schools talk about the way that nursing school can end up being like three-fourths of an MD. Like it's a hard degree. It's hard to pass the NCLEX. And so there becomes this grand question, which is why I was making it general. I think you're right. There has to be something that if you look at the history of nursing and the tradition, and not only that it's a profession, but a practice, a practice that was carried through time, and that we have these wonderful stories, even at the dawn of the modern age, of the practice of nursing and you know how sisters and nuns carried this forward. There's something for everyone to learn. What I'm worried is that, funny enough, the sort of historical group where that came from um, has vested reasons not to live into it. And sometimes I see it at med schools. Now, like I want to back up and say, not in some grand way, but I I know even in discussions we've had that um, I hope, uh, for instance, there's things like um, even the idea of like master adaptive learning that I'm starting to hear in med schools. I have to admit, I hope that we start to see that at nursing schools too, because I actually think that's more reflective of what um, nursing was in the past. Now, you asked the perfect questions, Charlie, because we got to answer two, and we're coming up at the end of this segment as well. So, you know, maybe you should try your hand at some of this podcast stuff, buddy. But in the meantime, <laughs> until then, uh, one more time for everyone, let people know the book and where they can get that, or in, in fact, where they can get uh, more of your work as well. Uh, one Church, How to Rekindle Trust, Negotiate Difference, and Reclaim Catholic Unity. And um, if you want to get that on Ave Maria's website or Amazon, my... Um, my website, charlescomosi.com, has all of my other books on it as well. So, Well, it's been wonderful. It's always great to have you. Thanks for joining us on uh, the, the, the new old format. It's great to talk to you for 40 minutes. Uh, wonderful show. Thanks again for coming on. Same. Thanks for having me on, guys. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back right after this. <laughs> The Uncommon Good, Bob Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this week. Thank you for listening to the show. No ma- ah, no, ma- wow. no matter how you do it, <laughs> either live, uh, like we, you know, we play on the weekends on Iowa Catholic Radio, on iowacatholicradio.com, Iowa Catholic Radio app, the podcasts. Thank you for listening to the show. Bud, what a fantastic interview. I mean, we always know that Charlie's going to bring his A-game, yeah. um, but I already feel more unified. I don't know about you. You were praising him about ending it in such a timely manner. I was kind of grateful because I feel I was sensing that there was a tougher question coming down the pike, but <laughs> maybe maybe I misread that. That's right. <laughs> he was he was just getting warned, warmed up. You know, it's funny because I think people go like, oh, yeah, we, we'll, we'll make multiple questions for Bo and Bud. We'll be able to pepper them. I don't know if anybody's ever gotten more than two. I know. But that's like, they they should know us better, don't you think? <laughs> I'm kind of, I feel like the the gotcha guy on, on Catholic radio. So, you know, being in the hot seat this year, it's been fun. <laughs> the table, oh, how the turntables. Yeah, oh, how the, t- <laughs> <laughs> yes, nice call. Well, speaking of um, tables, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know how to turn this one into an easy transition. Well, let me jump right in then. If you uh, want to join the prayer life of Iowa Catholic Radio, please download the Iowa Catholic Radio app so that you can pray the rosary anytime, anywhere. 
You can also listen on air. We pray the rosary together at 6 in the morning, 10 a.m., and then the Divine Mercy Chapel at 2.55 in the afternoon. That was good. I, that was an impressively bad uh, alley-oop that I passed you there. So good job catching it. That's like when um, a basketball player who's not bad, like LeBron James, Ooh. throws it to a legend like Russell Westbrook, and he just jams it home. Well, even Gary Payton has an off night. But you, <laughs> in, in general, a lot of Gary Payton alley-oops on this show. I thought we were going to talk about LeBron's recent meltdown. This, <laughs> we're still talking about that. We're still processing yeah. that. Well, maybe not you and me. Maybe other maybe other people who are hosts of shows, but we probably shouldn't get into that. What we should get into, what we can all get around, bud, and agree on, right? We're talking about unity. Mm-hmm. Not try, we're, not, we're not trying to d- divide the show hosts and maybe whose ha- favorite player is whom's. No. Yeah. What we want to bring together is we actually have our spring um, fundraiser that's coming up. And I just want to say one way that... I see this unity and diverse opinions is precisely through the people like you listeners who donate and make ministries like this possible. And so we want to say thank you for your prayers. We want to say thank you for the, the, the donations that people give. But even if you're listening on podcast, Iowa Catholic radio is what makes this puppy. uh, I was going to say puppy purr, but that's like a cat. Um, It's what makes the engine run. And it's through your generosity, it's through your almsgiving that makes this possible. So just remember that this is coming up, that you can do, uh, you know, be a part of our spring fundraiser. But you can always also donate at iowacatholicradio.com. There's a button for that. If you have the Iowa Catholic Radio app, an easy way to do that as well. Or you can call 515-223-1150 or text 515-223-1150 and arrange donations, whatever that might be. You know, you I used to think, but, well, hey, that's a... Iowa local number, you know, maybe people won't yeah. want to call, but now basically there's no such thing as local or not local numbers. So just make sure to call 515-223-1150 or text it or go to iowacatholicradio.com or the Iowa Catholic Radio app, and you can be a donor that makes uh, all of this programming here on Iowa Catholic Radio, but also the Uncommon Good possible. Whatever you decide, tune in, because often during the spring fundraiser, I'll throw in some push-ups based on donations. And so if you want to hear me struggle (laughs) and possibly collapse on the studio floor, another highlight of the spring fundraiser. Yeah, I don't know if that's unifying or diversifying, but whatever it is, um, Bud's heart appreciates it uh, when you make sure (laughs) to donate. Matt Wilcom has certainly stepped up his game with some of those um, songs that he's... I don't know. He's got way more skills on the board than I do. It is very impressive. And so hopefully you get to hear those. Uh, This is the Uncommon Good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, our families, city, state, nation, solar system, galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is the Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one. And anytime on podcast, just search for The Uncommon Good. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and The Uncommon Good provided by Mercy College of Health Sciences. Learn more at mchs.edu.